So this morning we're continuing in our series on the seven messages to the seven churches in the big, large letter of Revelation. And today we're right smack in the middle. It's the fourth church, the church of Thyatira. And so we find that message in Revelations 2, 18 to 29. So I'm going to read that for us and then we'll walk through it together. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, faith, service, and patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. Beware, I am throwing her on a bed, and those who commit adultery with her I am throwing into great distress, unless they repent of her doings. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts. I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. To everyone who conquers and continues to do my works to the end, I will give authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod as when clay pots are shattered. Even as I also received authority from my father, to the one who conquers, I will also give the morning star. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Have you ever come across something that at first looks really good? And then the more you kind of look at it, the deeper you realize, well, it still is good, but there's more happening here. There's some parts to it that aren't that good. When, when I'm, I'm getting older now, but when I was younger and going to the movies, the good people were good and the bad people were bad. Um, it usually was like the communists or the Nazis, and you have Indiana Jones fighting them or whatever. But nowadays, it's a little more mixed, isn't it? We get introduced to a hero. He's really good. He's going to be the savior in the movie, and yet we start hearing more of their story. We get a bit more of their character, and we realize, oh, there, there's some flaws here. Actually, their great motivation actually maybe isn't so good. Sure, they're still good in the end, but it's not the whole story. It's a little more mixed. That's also true of the villains. We get introduced to these villains who are terrible and doing these terrible things, but as you start to get the backstory, you're like, oh, I, I have some empathy for them. Of course they act that way if that's what happened to them. Or you start to see their motivation. You're like, actually, that's kind of an okay motivation. It's kind of good. It's just really poor application. Um, and so 
things don't actually, the, the initial impression isn't what's really true. It's a little more mixed. And I think that's what we get here with the church of Thyatira. It's a little more mixed. It's not good, it's not bad, it's, it's both. So it begins, this letter, in verse 18, this message. And it says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So in the beginning of Revelations in chapter 1, we get introduced to Jesus, and we have this fantastic vision of Jesus. And it's descriptions about his hair, and about his robe, and about um, his mouth, and this two-edged sword. And then what we see interesting in each of these seven messages, they'll pick up a specific part of that image and drop it at the beginning of the letter. And I think there's a reason for that, that there's a, that part of the image actually relates to the content of that letter. And so here we have the two images from that initial larger image is eyes like fire and feet like burnished bronze. Most scholars would say that the eyes of fire is kind of like this penetrating gaze. This gaze that sees things for what's really going on, which seems appropriate for a church that it might be mixed, that you're going to need eyes like fire to see, for what, see things for what they really are, which also makes sense in the context because we see later on in the message that people will know that God searches hearts and minds. The, the second thing, the feet like burnished bronze, that one's... It's harder to know. Usually we build our understanding of these kind of words and phrases by its usage. So you see something used 10, 15 different times in a particular way. You're like, okay, this is what it means. This particular phrasing doesn't show up very much, if at all. Um, so it's harder to understand what it means. The best is that I found is that it refers to someone who will act decisively and swiftly who's about to do something. Um, and so we get that also in this message because Jesus is actually going to act. He's going to act against Jezebel. So in this, this message to this church, it begins with a God who sees things for what they really are and who's going to act. It continues in verse 19. I know your works. Your love, faith, service, and patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. This is a church marked by love, faith, service, endurance. These are good things. This is a church that receives the love of God and is sharing God's love. This is a church that's holding to the faith. This is a church that's serving one another, and it's enduring through hardship. This is a really good church. If you asked any pastor, okay, would you want a church that's marked by love, faith, service, and endurance? They're like, hands down, yes, sign me up for that. This is a good church. And more than that, their last works are greater than their first. 
the things that are happening now is greater than what happened before. This is a church that's growing. There's more love. There's greater faith. This is a really good church. But it's not the whole story. In verse 20, it says, But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and eat food sacrificed to idols. There's this person, Jezebel, who's actually leading the church astray. So it begs the question, who is Jezebel and what's going on in the church? Now, there's some debate about whether Jezebel was a specific person or not. Is this an actual person in the church that's preaching and teaching or kind of leading people astray? Or is this just kind of a, a common way of thinking that's invaded the church that people are buying into? It's really hard to know. But what's really clear is the name is meant to be symbolic. That if it is a specific person, it's guaranteed their name wasn't Jezebel. That what we have here is a symbol and a, a labeling of it. And we've seen this before. Just in, last, in the last letter to Pergamum, we saw we were introduced to Balaam and Balak. There's these references to the Old Testament. And what, what these symbols and references do is both, I think, two things. One is they make it applicable to all times. If this is a problem of this specific person, well, great, when that person's done, it's done. But when it's a symbolic name, it's like everyone can read into that. Um, it's not just a person, it's a way of something happening. The second is it comes with a whole layer of interpretation. That if, if you name it Jezebel, there's this whole thing of the past, of history, of Old Testament, that then is imported into now and helps you explain what's going on. So who is Jezebel? We find her in the Old Testament. Um, I think we get introduced to her in 1 Kings around chapter 16. And she is the wife of King Ahab. And so we're introduced to King Ahab as the one who does evil in the sight of the Lord. And more than that, who's done more evil than anyone before him, any king before him. So this, at this point, this is the worst of the worst up till now. Ahab marries Jezebel, who's not an Israelite, and who's dedicated to the worship of Baal. And as King Ahab marries her and brings her into the kingdom of Israel, she brings with her this worship of Baal. As she has more influence over Israel, she influences more and more worship of Baal. They introduce altars to Baal. She employs 850 prophets to Baal. And then she starts persecuting the prophets of Yahweh. At some point, she actually starts executing the prophets of Yahweh. And so either they're being killed or they go into hiding. I don't know if you remember from the summer when we're 
going, with, uh, going through the stories of Elijah and Elisha, this is the story that leads to that sacrifice competition on Mount Carmel. This is the time of Jezebel. All her prophets do their thing with their sacrifice and nothing happens. And Elijah pours all the water on and calls on God and he sets it on fire. But that dark time in Israel's history, that's what's being said here. Jezebel is the symbol of this voice of someone who brings in these idols, these other gods, and mixes it with the faith of Yahweh. So as soon as we see that name, we're, oh, that's what's happening here. We have this mixing, this mixing of other gods with Jesus. What do we know of the church or the context? Well, honestly, we, we don't know a whole lot. Um, this is the smallest of all the cities of these seven letters, and there isn't a lot of records of what's going on there. There is some mention that, well, there's these trade guilds, and most likely um, these professional trade guilds have, have a big role in the city. There's some reference to, like, wool workers, linen workers, tanners, potters, bakers, that sort of thing. And to be a part of that profession, you need to be part of that guild. Uh, to kind of fit with that, we notice in Acts 16, we're introduced to Lydia, who's a dealer in purple cloth, who's actually from Thyatira. So that would make sense that she's probably part of a guild um, that would kind of lend to this kind of idea that, oh, that's, that's kind of what's going on in this city, are these professional guilds. The thing with those is, to be a part of the guild meant to be a part of the social activities that were going on as well. And most likely, what's going on in these things are these feasts and banquets that start with food sacrifice to idols and then continues into drunkenness and then leading to all kinds of immorality. And so the Christians are faced with a particularly difficult choice. If I want to continue in my profession and be part of this guild, i got to participate. Or I can choose not to participate, which then probably means I'm going to be kicked out of the guild and got to find a new profession. And so that seems to be what most scholars would say is going on here. That, and then there's this voice, I think, that's saying, well, you know what? It's not that bad. It, it's just part of living in this day and age, that this is the context we're in. We got to be part of the world. So maybe we participate. That it, it's not that bad to participate because it's just part of the job and part of living in this day. And so what we have is this voice that's actually telling them to compromise, to kind of mix, fit these things together. There's this voice that's seducing them and leading them astray. So this leads to the warning. So we see in verse 21 to 23, it says, I gave her time to repent, but she, this is Jezebel, refused to repent of her fornication. Beware, I'm throwing her on a bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I'm throwing into great distress, unless they repent of their doings, and I will strike her children dead. 
and all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. Jezebel is given time to repent, but she does not. And so now God is going to move. And we're told that she's going to be put on a bed. Most would suggest, and I think the NIV rightly translates this as sickbed, that she's going to be put on a sickbed. Those that commit adultery with her are going to be thrown into distress or sickness, and the offspring of this unholy union will be death. And so what starts to happen here is we move from some literal to more symbolic, figurative language. We get this picture of this voice that's seducing. And to kind of give in to that seduction is going to be like adultery. And that adultery is going to lead to sickness, and the sickness is going to lead to death. That what we have here is this kind of insidious problem that's coming from the inside out. And it's this slow leading astray that's mixing. And this mixing is going to produce sickness And the sickness will lead to death. Now, it it sounds pretty harsh at first. But actually, I think what's happening here isn't about punishment, but about consequences. That people are going to reap what they sow. It It says right here, and I will give to each of you as your works deserves. Your works deserve, this is, this is where they go. That actually spiritual adultery, when you give in to the seduction voices and when you mix faith with other idols, it leads to spiritual sickness. And the result of spiritual sickness is spiritual death. Spiritual adultery, spiritual adultery, is idolatry. And idolatry is bad for us because it leads to spiritual sickness and leads to spiritual death. So here's the situation. Here's what we got. We have this great church that's growing in all things that truly matter. They actually are good. Yet they're tempted to compromise by the culture around them. They began to tolerate those compromises and now are in danger because this compromise is going to lead to spiritual sickness which will give birth to spiritual death. There's this great quote um, by Daryl Johnson in his book Discipleship on the Edge um, uh, that's all about revelations. He's also got an amazing, I I think it might be a nine part sermon series on the Daryl Johnson podcast. Um, I'd highly recommend it if you're interested in things in Revelation. But he had this to say. They, the church in Thyatira, were growing and maturing in discipleship. But in spite of that, they were tolerating Jezebel, which meant they were tolerating a spirit of compromise. And that Jesus will not tolerate. Why? Because to compromise means to commit spiritual adultery. And spiritual adultery inevitably leads to spiritual sickness and eventually to spiritual death. So what does this mean for James North? 
So as I prayed about this, here's what I think God said. This is a good church. This church is marked by love, faith, service, endurance. This is a place where you are actually receiving God's love and then sharing that love with others. This is a church that's holding fast to faith in some really crazy times. This is a church that serves others inside this church, outside this church. This is a church that endures. Jesus sees and knows the struggles you have, the deep things you're holding and wrestling with, and you're here today. It shows your endurance. This is a good church. More than that, it's a place where people are growing. Your last works are greater than your first. You're growing in love, in faith, in servants, service and endurance. Yet Jezebel is here too. We are in danger of being seduced. We have been tempted to compromise our faith. We have been led astray to mix allegiances with the world around us. I think some of us here have committed spiritual adultery and as a result experienced spiritual sickness. In our day and age, the inner self is the center of everything. There's an idol of self. And there's all kinds of ways this works out in our culture and impacts us as the church. But when I think about our particular church and the, the, this idol of self, the way it starts to infect and lead us astray, is basically that we are the main actors in our own story. We are the center of the universe, and what we do matters most. That everything else, other people and God, are supporting actors. That I do the action. I make something happen, and God comes along to help with it. Everything in our day and age is preaching that you are the main actor in your own story. And that starts to kind of get drawn into our church and our faith. And we get led astray. We begin to think of ourselves as the main actor. When it comes to our spiritual life, we think that it's our actions that matter most. That if we do the right things in the right way, if we're doing the right amount of devotions and reading the right amount of scriptures our faith will grow. What I do matters most. In, in our parenting, that if we parent the right way, if we do the right family devotions, if we read enough scripture, we can control a certain outcome for our kids, that they will have faith at the end. It's that it's our actions that matter most. And if they're not holding to the faith at the end, we did something wrong. For the young adults in the crowd, there's a pressure these days to find your path, your calling, your vocation, your way of life. That you, you 
have to figure out what you're passionate about, what you're gifted in. And then you got to find the path that resonates with that. And only you can find it because only you know your true self. It's up to you to discover your gifts and passions and career paths. You make it happen. When it comes to our well-being, you have to care for yourself. Self-care is what you need to do. So you need to set boundaries. You have to say no. You have to cut off the toxic voices. You need to find what gives you joy and organize your life around it. The idol of self from our culture says what you do matters most. And that starts to invade us here in the church, that we are the main actors, and God is just a supporting actor. Jezebel is calling to us today and saying, your actions hold ultimate responsibility. Your actions determine the outcomes. But just as adultery with Jezebel leads to spiritual sickness and death with Thyatira, adultery to self is leading to spiritual sickness in our midst. We see it all around us, and if we're honest, we feel it inside us. We're plagued with anxiousness and fear. We're left striving in our spiritual lives, but we get nowhere. We're parenting our kids out of fear, trying to control an outcome, probably only to ensure the negative outcome we don't want. That we're paralyzed by the endless choices and paths we could take in life. And in our effort and self-care, we're probably in more need than ever. This focus on ourselves, on our actions, that what we do matters most, is making us sick. I work for an organization called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and I oversee all our campus ministry across Canada. I have 53 people working under me with over 60 fellowships. And I long for students in all these places to experience the goodness of Jesus, to know that there's not one area of their life that's made better by letting Jesus in. And so I strive. But I start to give in to this idea that my actions matter most. And my striving leads me to work longer hours. My striving leads me to sleepless nights. You can ask Danielle about that. My striving leads to being tired and used up and generally grumpy. Again, you could ask my family about that. This focus on myself and my actions makes me sick. It's at this point that God reminds me, the problem here is you've got your roles mixed up. And the passage he usually uses to help me around this is the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark. So in this story, this crowd of people have followed Jesus, and they're out in the wilderness, and Jesus just teaches them all day long. And then the disciples are like, okay, it's getting late. You need to send them away. They need to go get food and go home. 
And Jesus is like, you feed them. And they're like, what are you talking about? There's 5,000 people. It would take almost a year's worth of food, of, of salary to buy food. And we're in the wilderness. There are no places to buy stuff. This is impossible. And Jesus turns to them and says, how many loaves have you? Basically, Jesus says, what do you got? Give me what you got and look what I can do with it. Jesus takes all they have, the little they have, and makes it enough. Through the story, God reminds me of my role and his role. I am not the main actor. God is the main actor. His actions matter most. I'm a supporting actor. My role is to look at what do I got and then give him all I got. And it's his role to do a miracle with it. There's no amount of work that I can do to transform someone's life. That's the miracle that God does. My job is to offer up the best I got that day. And actually what's great, again, the, what Jesus says is, what do you have? He doesn't say, go get me five loaves and two fish. It's like, what do you have? Some days that might be seven loaves. Some days it might be two. Really good day, maybe I got 20. And I can think, yeah, I've, I've got something here. I can do something with this. And she's like, what? It's 5,000 people. 20 loaves it doesn't make any more difference than five. I still do the miracle. His job is to do the miracle. My job is to offer up what I got. But it's not just true for ministry. I was uh, walking with a friend um, earlier, and he's in the business world, and he was saying that's actually the approach he's got to take with his business, that ultimately the success of his business is going to be what God does. His job each day is to be responsible, to do the work he knows he needs to do and offer that up. And in the end, if the business is going to be successful, it's actually that God blesses it and makes it successful. His job, in the end, isn't to hold ultimate responsibility. It's to be responsible for what he has and offer it up and let God sort that out. But this isn't just true for ministry or for business. It's for every area of life. We are not the main actors. We are not the center of our own universe, despite what culture would tell us. Our job is to offer up the best we have each day. When it comes to our spiritual lives, sure, we should actually be reading scripture and practicing prayer and getting, but growing your faith, that's the work God does. That's the miracle. Your participation in your devotions, in small groups, and, and coming to church like this are five loaves and two fishes. When it comes to parenting, that God is the main actor. That you play a supporting actor role. You cannot control an outcome. 
What does it mean to entrust that God loves our kids more than we do? That God will never leave them nor forsake them. No matter what road they may go down, that God will find them and pursue them. And that the outcome isn't dependent on you. Now, sure, you should do your best. You should try and be a better parent. You should love them, speak grace and truth. But the outcome isn't dependent on you. That's a miracle that God does. It's true for finding your path, your way of life. That's a work that God, God actually wants to put you to work. You don't have to wrestle some calling from God, like some secret plan. He wants you to find it. He's at work in your life. Your job is to look and to ask, but it's not up to you to make it happen. When it comes to self-care, <laughs> your own well-being, that it's actually God, his love, his presence in your life that will fill you. It's not dependent on you. You're a supporting actor. The idol of self from the culture around us preaches that what we do matters most. The pressure, the weight, the responsibility is just too much for us, and it makes us sick. This spiritual adultery leads to spiritual sickness and can lead to spiritual death. There is good news. God has given us time to repent and there's freedom in discovering the right amount of responsibility as a supporting actor. My job is to offer up what I got, all of it, not hold back, but only to offer up what I got. And it's God's job to do a miracle. The passage ends um, in verse 24 to 29. And it says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. To everyone who conquers and continues to do my work to the end, I will give authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod, as when clay pots are shattered even as I also received authority from my Father. To the one who conquers, I will also give the morning star. Let anyone who has an ear, to, has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So a couple of things as we finish up here. If we remain true to, true to Jesus, do not give in to idolatry, which is the deep things of Satan, that we give in to the, the message of the world around us and mix it with our faith. Or, if we have, for those that repent, I think are in this group, you will get to rule with Jesus. Not just rule with him, this iron rod and clay pots shattered. It's actually an allusion back to um, Psalm 2, where the enemies of God are shattered and destroyed. And I think there's this picture that not only do we get to rule with God, we get to participate in the shattering of the evil that has plagued us. These things that have made us sick, 
that we will get to triumph over because of Jesus and with Jesus. And in the end, we'll be given the morning star, which I think is the person of Jesus. Uh, the worship team can come back up now. So in the end, we get this picture of if we remain true or if we've fallen and we come back and we repent, we will get to rule with Jesus and be with him. We'll get to participate in the shattering of these things that have plagued us and hindered us and held us down and made us sick. And we will be with Jesus. Let me pray quickly for us. Father, we thank you that you are a God with eyes like fire and feet like bronze. That you see things for what they really are and you plan to act. Jesus, I think you see through to our hearts and minds as a congregation. You point this stuff out not to rub our faces in it because you want us to be healthy. You don't want us to suffer in spiritual sickness. So Jesus, would you speak to us? Would you open our eyes to see what you see so that we can join in with what you want to do in our lives? We pray this in your name. Amen.